Hi Chris, how are you? Good evening Rod. All is well and I'm not in the shed. Oh no, where are you? So for those listening, I'm in a purple hotel. If you're in the UK, you'll know what that means. And my acoustics may be better or they may, may be slightly worse. It'll be interesting to see how it comes out. Yeah, I'm, I don't know how optimistic I am, but we'll see. So hopefully the new thing we instituted last week will make a difference in case the Zoom recording goes wrong. I do know Chris's bandwidth is so limited in the hotel advertised by Lenny Henry that we've had to turn our video off. So this could be quite interesting for us tonight. Yeah, but then I was listening to other podcasts on Relay and they don't turn their video on when they record. So maybe this is what the pros do. I don't know. I quite like to see what's going on. It might help us when we're doing things like describing things for radio that we can't actually see the thing we're waving at the mic at the camera. True, true. But I do like to see your face expressions because if I'm saying something and you don't disagree, I instantly know. And same for you, obviously. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Should we give it a go? Yeah, well, i got to say, Zoom's not doing well on my end, so we'll, we'll have to see how this goes. <laughs> if it's awful and terrible, we may have to do another recording on Thursday night, but we'll see how we go. All right, let's give it a go. Let's dive straight into Wake From Sleep, episode 68, for the 15th of May, 2023. Here we go then. So straight into follow-up then. What have we got? So straight in with me, last two weeks ago, I said I was going to take my new Apple TV and put it in my big, my big fancy television, take the other Apple TV to the slightly less fancy television. And as a consequence of freeing up two HomePod minis, I was going to try them on this on, on eARC, so sort of connected directly to the TV to give sound rather than the fairly rubbish sound that comes out of the television. And it was relatively straightforward setup. There was a bit of jiggery-pokery with going menus and turning things on and making them realize in the same room and there had to be a stereo pair which made sense too but after all that and I had to turn on one thing on my television which was buried away in the menus I now have stereo sound coming out my TV from my HomePods and it just seems to work on the normal TV and in the Apple TV and relatively painless and definitely sounds better well that's good news if something works as advertised then so far I, I dread to think the next time there's a software update though what's going to happen because there's quite a lot of pieces to go wrong there you know think the TV gets a software update or one of the home pods does or one lags what happens I mean I think you've had this set up for a while so you're probably more experienced at this than I am yeah so I have it in my shed and actually surprisingly seems to work fairly reliably I'm really pleased with it but like you I have the same concern when something needs upgrading or if I just play some music to those home pods just through my phone say and go play that there will then the tv pick it back up next time and it seems pretty good it's probably actually one of the more reliable pieces of the home pod infrastructure yeah you had to go and see it didn't you <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's gonna break horribly now should we move on to the next one Moving on, I think you've put this one into follow-up rather than into news, so I'll let you explain this one. Uh, just briefly, because I think the Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard is more follow-up now, because it's just been going on and on for so long. But it, the EU has approved it, but it has the same concerns as the UK regulators about all the cloud hosting side of it, and that was kind of it. So I didn't want to go on for it too long, because I think we've spoken about it enough times on the show. We have an... The thing I'm still not clear about is all this, one says yes, one says no, one's looking at it more closely. It's all a bit up in the air for Microsoft, isn't it? Can the whole deal be scuppered by the UK just saying no? I don't know the answer to that question, sadly. I guess we've just got to keep watching to see what happens. Now, these things are interesting. If we go back to the, our other little ongoing piece about the UK's terrible law about requiring to not allow, having to have backdoors in two-factor encrypt, encrypted things and people threatening to leave the market. I mean, WhatsApp and Signal have both said, well, we'll just leave the UK market. You're only a couple of million, tens of millions of people. We're not going to compromise our whole product over just the UK. 
And maybe Microsoft would do the same thing here, where they go, right, okay, no Xbox for you. Yeah, I do sometimes think that we are only a small island. So why would they why would they let us through, I guess, or, or you know, let let us scupper the whole deal? So it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, interesting times as usual. I guess we keep an eye on it. But a uh, good article on The Verge to have a read through that give a good, good overview of where the EU are and where everybody else is on this. And I think that was it for follow-up. Yeah, I was going to say, I must confess, The Verge do have some good articles. I'm not won over by their new design, but we get some good news from there. Yeah, we definitely do. Okay, firing into news, and we start with a slightly whimsical one. So I'm a big fan of a company called Teenage Engineering. I think they do some really interesting design stuff, maybe... Not quite Johnny Ive, it's a little bit more more buttons and things than, than Johnny Ive would allow for, but they do some interesting things. And they have announced a $1,500 audio recorder. So this is effectively a dictaphone with very high quality uh, outputs and just some beautiful looking design really. It makes me think of Sony stuff from the 70s, frankly, the sort of particular design they have. Would you pay 1500 quid for a dictaphone? For somebody that never uses voice memos on his iPhone, I'm not sure this is for me. I'm not sure I'm the target audience. But like you, as soon as I saw the picture, I thought you could put the Sony badge in the corner and I'd believe it. I think it looks fantastic. It cl- clearly looks very lovingly made and designed. But for A, 1500 quid is a lot of money. And B, I'm not the target audience for this. No, it's a very specific person. And for those that, once again, we're proving our point of not having the video switched on. If you click on the linked article, there's a little GIF of it actually in motion and recording. And it's got a little LED in the top right, which counts up saying you know your, how long your recording has been, how many tracks it is. But it's actually got a physically spinning wheel. There's no tape in the device. It's got an SSD in it. But it's got a physically spinning wheel, so you can see it's actually recording as well. And it's engineering overkill, but it's a very pretty thing. Yeah, if this was like a hundred hundred pounds, I'd probably buy one just to have a go on it because it does look so nicely made. Really, you know, really clean like lines, and it just looks really good. But I don't think I've got a any need for it, and B, I haven't got a spare fifteen hundred pounds. I think if you had a spare fifteen hundred pounds, you wouldn't be spending it on this. But a pretty thing, and I hope the ten or eleven people that buy it enjoy it. But again, well done, teenage engineering. I think once again a beautiful looking product. Yeah, I'd love them to publish in a year's time, you know, number of sales they've had for this device. Yeah, there's a video by Quinn Nelson from Snazzy Labs where he builds a PC out of a PC case designed by Teenage Engineering. It's not even a PC, it's a Mac Mini he rips the guts out of and puts it into the Teenage Engineering case. And it's quite an impressive thing, but they do make very pretty products. Yeah, their engineering is superb. And they make the Playdate. So Panic, who make the Playdate, partnered with Teenage Engineering to do the hardware design for it. And that, again, is a very nice piece of hardware. Mm, Excellent. Okay, I think we've said enough about that. We can move on to our second story. And this is a story from 9to5Mac. The number of service outages that Apple are experiencing at the moment is approaching unacceptable levels, given the importance of the ecosystem. Would you agree with this? I haven't had that many problems with it personally, but the amount I've been reported seem, I don't know, seem incredibly high to me. Now, I did say to you a few weeks ago, I wonder if they're prepping for WWDC because you often get these outages this time of year, but it seems like we've had a lot of outages here. Like I said, I haven't been that impacted of you. Well, I see bits and pieces, particularly with the weather app and stuff like that, but I think it's probably easier... For me, just to, I, I'm not going to read all of them because there are many. But if I go backwards, backwards from May the 11th, 
Apple ID, ID services down. May the 9th, Apple weather down. May the 5th, Apple music down. May the 2nd, Apple confirms outage impacting some Apple Pay, Apple Card, and Apple Cash features. April 24th, reports of Apple Store down. April 15th, users complain about a bug causing Apple devices continually ask for Apple ID password. This is the last one. April 10th, Apple services including Apple Music and the App Store are down. And there's another one, two, three, four. Nine reports going back to January the 19th. That is a lot in a very short space of time for such critical services. Yeah, they didn't have a good April, did they? They really didn't. And if you think of some of the services behind this, Apple Pay being down is a major problem. I mean, we don't have Apple Pay anywhere else in in the United States, but people depend on that to move cash around, friends and family and all the rest of it. So as soon as you've got issues with an actual payment application, that's a real problem. Apple Store, could imagine you were parking somewhere or you were trying to download your boarding pass for a flight and you were unable to get the app from the App Store. Again, could be a major problem. The music and things like that, I think, is less critical. They're more annoying, but there are some things that you're absolutely dependent on. And there's another article that I've read this week about how all this downtime for Apple weather is actually pushing people to use other Apple, other, other weather apps again, which is probably good for them. But it's not a great look for a company that you're meant to be building a reliable backbone that you build all these services that they charge so much in revenue for. Yeah, it, it isn't a good look. And actually, you mentioned Apple Pay. I did actually have an issue with this, probably around May the 2nd, I think you said about it, or May the 5th, because I was adding a, a debit card to my phone. And I couldn't do it. And I go, what do you mean I can't do it? And then it transpired that Apple Pay was down. So I couldn't add the new card to my phone just to set up Apple Pay as normal. And so actually, I, I did tell a lie. I was impacted by that one. And then it was only because I obviously read 9to5Mac that day that I realized, oh, it's not an error on my side. It is because Apple Pay is down. Because you always doubt yourself first time, don't you? Absolutely. And I mean, that's maybe a part of a problem with this is that our expectation is that applications are reliable and the backbone of the service of the device we depend on for so many things. Without, without these sort of back-end cloud-based services, it's not quite a brick, but it's not great. No, it's not great at all. And obviously their future, or a lot of their future, should I say, is in service revenue. And they're going to need them up and not reported as being down for them to keep growing, I think. Otherwise, like you say, people will start finding alternatives. Yeah, and there are plenty of alternatives. Let's face it, if music's down all the time, you'll go to Spotify. If payment services are down all the time, well, you're a little bit more stuck, but you've still got your cash cards in your wallet. Maybe you stop trusting your phone or your watch to do these kinds of things. So it won't take very much to push people off. If, if two times out of ten, three times out of ten, I mean, where's the tolerance for what you're going to put up with for becoming an unreliable service? And then you start looking at Android or you start, you know... But where are we going to get end up? Are we going to end up back with DSLRs in our pockets again to take pictures and all the rest of it and, you know, dumb phones? It's a really tenuous thing they've got going here. They need to be quite careful with this or they will lose people. Yeah, I mean, it only takes you going out for dinner and you go to pay the bill and you can't pay the bill because your phone or your watch isn't isn't working. And then you'll be taking a card back with you and it will be a big step backwards. Yeah, and you, imagine your car keys stop working. My car keys or my credit card because i use it on my watch on my phone all the time i barely take keys or a wallet with me now yeah and i'm exactly the same i've got house keys but i don't take car keys i don't take a wallet it's rare it's only when i travel i'll pick up my wallet and that's just because i'm never sure what payment and services i'm going to hit abroad which by the way very brief diversion really bad in america for this some places had stopped using apple pay because it was unreliable for them one of the tours i went on one customer had been charged twice so they stopped using Apple Pay across their company, you know, a multi-million dollar company, because one customer had been charged twice and they didn't know what to do about it. So they just demanded everybody use credit cards again. Wow, that is not a good look, is it? 
No, and in America, and Apple is an American company, so it's, it's deeply got to be deeply worrying for some people. Yeah, that's true. Shall we move on to the next one? Let's move on to the next one. I just thought this was interesting. So this is a report from a company called Fairphone. I think we've talked about them on the podcast before. Their thing is they make repairable devices, primarily phones up to this point. So they are all user replaceable. You can order parts for anything. The idea being if the battery starts to go in your phone, you can get another one. If you crack the screen, you can replace it yourself. If a better modem comes out for it, you can potentially upgrade that too. And their devices are lasting sort of five to six years, but with all these replaceable parts, which I think is laudable, actually. We shouldn't have such disposable devices where it just gets so broken you've got to throw it away. They have announced this week that they're going to have user repair all headphones as well. Comes with a nice app showing you how to do it. They're called the Fairbuds XL, and I think this is a really good idea. Yeah, they look good. If the sound quality is good, then I'd soon be up the street. I quite like the design and the aesthetic. And obviously, yeah, if I could repair them, why wouldn't you do that? It's a lot cheaper than buying a new pair of headphones. Yeah, I mean, they're €249 now. You can replace those bits if the the headband goes or you manage to blow out one of the tweeters or something that are built into them. I think it's a good idea. And I I endorse what they do with the phone as well. It's a shame it runs Android, but it's it's an open-sourced version of Android. It's not baked in Android. You need to add Google services to it, is my understanding of the phone. So... I, you know, I think this is a good idea to put out a product where you can buy new ear cushions for 14 euros, 19, 14 euros, 95. That's really good. That is good. I'd hate to think what they cost for my Pod Maxes. My son would equally love these because he could take them to pieces and modify them. And I'm guessing you can make them quite unique by, by, by purchasing different colours. You know, you could have a, yeah. a blue headband, pink arms maybe, and I don't know, green earpieces. Yeah, which is cool. And again, if you use them a lot and you you banjax the battery, you can just replace the battery and not need to throw away the whole product. Or pay, I don't know, 150 euros or something like that, just have the batteries fixed. I don't know what I dread to think what they're like for your AirPods. I don't want to find out. <laughs> I hope you never do. Speaking of expensive things, the Dell UltraSharp 32 6K monitor which we talked about in this podcast back when, I think it was E3, wasn't it? The product was announced. That'd be January? Yeah, it was January time. Has actually is now available. You can visit Dell UK or Dell US and buy one should you choose to. It will cost you the princely sum of two thousand five hundred and forty-two pounds and eighty pence, excluded. Sorry, that's including VAT two one one nine zero zero without VAT. Yep, you too can buy a six K monitor. Is this something you're interested in? I possibly would be if it wasn't so ugly. I don't know how Dell have managed it, and I guess it's got a very good camera on it, but it just looks horrific. I would be tempted. I think, but I've got a studio display, so I don't need another one, but it, it's a screen with a lot of capability. And the fact that it's 6K is fantastic because Apple's 6K screen starts about £4,000 in the UK and that's without a stand. So really you're talking £5,000. So it's you could buy two of those for one Apple screen, which is already, what, two years old? Maybe longer now. Mm, yeah. It's it's quite a compelling thing. I agree with you. It is ugly as sin, but you think it comes with a webcam, for example, even though it's an ugly one, which the studio display, the XDR doesn't, has built-in microphones. It will act as a KVM, so you can have more than one computer plugged into it. It's got two USB-C hubs built into it. It will charge something at 140 watts, which is impressive, and has a native resolution of 6K, which is 6144 by 3456 pixels at 60 hertz, which is I think similar to the XDR, and as an HDR 600 format. So I think this is a pretty good screen. Yeah, and it's got a two and a half gigabit Ethernet jack in it. So it is, to be fair, I think it is very well loaded. 
I think you, whilst it's a lot of money, I think it's very well specced. If it looked less ugly, it would be a lot more tempting. Yeah, and Dell make good screens. Let's face it, the panel is probably a Samsung or an LG panel anyway. They don't make their own panels. Maybe we'll see this screen in the next generation Apple monitors. Maybe they'll announce it at WWDC. Yeah, I'd like to see. I'd like to see Apple do their update, and I'd like to see LG because I do like my LG TV, and I'd probably be tempted to buy one of their screens if it was nicer than the ultra fine range, which just never really landed that well. Yeah, I think that's probably fair enough. Anything else to say on the screen? No, not for me. I'm not in the market for one oh. right now. <laughs> it is interesting, and if the Samsung one ever actually makes it to market, we're still waiting for that. But that was one of the other screens announced at E3. We'll yeah, that one. On that one did look good so. and a better design. The design was significantly better, wasn't it? Definitely. Moving on and back to our AI assistants and making use of LLMs and all the rest of it, as has been a bit of a kick for us recently. Google have now jumped into the whole fray of Copilot, which is the Microsoft product, and what ChatGPT will allow you to do, which will suggest coding answers and solutions and suggestions for you as you're actually making use of Android Studio. So when you're trying to write your next Android Studio app to run on an Android phone or tablet, possibly Android Wear device. I don't think I've looked at that in enough detail. This will actually help you as you code, which is probably a good thing. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? And it reminds me a bit of a story we did earlier in the year when I think it was a rumor about Apple saying that you'd be able to build apps by talking to Siri, you know, with your 3D headset that they may or may not release. It just reminded me a bit of that, that obviously they write the language. And I guess with, you know, ChatG. GPT now, they can actually be a lot lot clever about what they're suggesting you do. So I'm not surprised to see this. It's interesting Google got it out. They I did notice in the comments it said it's, you know, very early days is how Google's advertising it. It does feel like Google are rushing things out the door just to get something out so that there's still a talking point. I think they've they've got that fear of missing out, haven't they? And therefore they're they're pushing things out potentially a bit too too early than what, what they should be. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And we're going to talk about Google a bit more in the main show, some of the products they've announced at their I.O. event. But this is interesting. I have been gently asking ChatGPT for some coding suggestions for very simple things inside of some of the things I do. And to be fair to it, it actually does a half-decent job. What you get now, the original attempts when I tried when it originally released, didn't work. But it is suggesting things where the code will run and they'll get an answer. Whether it's the best code in the world, I'm not sure. But if all you want is something quick and you have an idea of how to bend what it's suggesting into what you want to do, it does actually work quite well. And if if Android, if Google can bring that to Android, it's going to speed up the implementation of new ideas for phones and apps for phones. And that's got to be hugely powerful for a company like Google. Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious to see what Apple are going to say around the AI piece. You know, we've got the developers conference I don't know what, a couple of weeks away, Apple have said nothing thus far around Ch- ChatGTP. Oh, I can't get the acronym right, apologies. ChatGPT. So it's going to be interesting whether they're going to do something similar. But you're right, if you're coding and you've got, you know, the equivalent of Copilot helping you, you know, write your next line of code or giving you suggestions, that's going to be fantastic, isn't it? Especially for new developers. Really, you should help them get on board a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, I... I agree with you. I think for new developers, just to get something up and running is a great thing. You, as we've said before, you you need to be able to verify this stuff. You don't if you don't really know what it's suggesting, and you can't verify it yourself that it's accurate. Their loop's not going to on the thousand and one iteration of the loop. It's not going to do something weird. You kind of need to be aware of that. But if you treat it like that as a a cautious friend who's maybe giving you a bit of advice, I think you'll go a lot further with it, and it will speed things up. 
and you would hope they would only get better. I don't think it's going to put any of us out of a job anytime soon. But at the same time, that ability to speed up coders who know what they're doing or, you know, or are a bit stuck for inspiration or, or something like that can only be a powerful thing. So, you know, the, 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 the monster's out of the box, I guess. We just need to be a bit careful where it takes us. But stuff like this is definitely interesting. For me, trying to port an iPhone application to Android, something like this is really interesting. I know how to do it in Swift, but I don't know what the Kotlin or the whatever uh, Java uh, equivalent is to make it run on Android for. Maybe something like this could help me. Yeah, that's true. And I guess you've got the compiler there, haven't you, to to validate what the syntax and what you're being given. So it, it should be, even if the suggestions that the copilot give you are wrong, the compiler should pick that up, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think it's probably a good place for it to start. I agree. I mean, a compiler telling you your code is syntactically correct isn't the same as it verifying that it's running properly. You need unit testing and all that kind of stuff to ensure that it does. So it, it takes you some of the way without knowing all your code. It can't take you all of the way. But then I guess if it's actually built in the studio, as, as Google are doing here, then you've got a better chance of the compiler and the model running together. And I agree with you. I think it would be interesting to see Apple make some sort of implementation for this for Swift UI or some element of Swift or within Xcode because it's fantastically complicated. Even if all it suggested was, okay, how do I do a unit test on this code? You know, and what does a unit test mean for some people? That's probably quite a powerful thing in and of itself. Xcode itself is fantastically complicated without sort of picking away at the little bits and pieces of Swift. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes and yeah, let's see what Apple bring to the party then. Yep, moving on, but staying with AI. It's just a linked article from the register about open source AI and subscriptions and potentially running some of these models, ChatGPT and, and Llama, which is what the Google one we've just been talking about is called, on your own systems. And things like this I find quite interesting if you have got your own data to run them on and you have got a sufficiently powerful computer kicking around the house. Being able to run these in some of the, the imaging libraries as well within your own environment and not trusting a Google or an open.ai or whoever is running them to do it, I think is a useful thing. It's a useful exercise for people that are interested in it to understand how they work. But more than that, it's not always pushing it out to the cloud and doing this. Having stuff within your own domain that you understand, I think, is useful. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether organizations will do anything like that if they want to use this technology. But you know, keep it in-house, if that makes sense, because it's it's kind of like back to Apple, isn't it, where they do everything on device. Would organizations want to do that rather than asking a chat GT, GPT model to do it for you that's cloud-hosted that other people have access to and it might learn from? There are certain things you're going to want to keep, keep to yourself, aren't there? Sure. But you as a business will have business secrets, as you say, that you don't want to get out there. And you can imagine... I think the Marvel are a good example of this. If you're trying to train an AI model to draw Iron Man, then you have a lot of images of Iron Man within your 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 co corporate firewalls that you don't want to be put out there, so it can be learned by somebody else's language model. You know, running it on your own estate and your own IP like that makes massive sense for a company at the size of Disney. Uh, and you can think of multiple others, can you? Even you as an organization will have your own corporate secrets that you would all, you know, you, you could see the benefits of a language model running within it, but not pushing that outside of your own firewall and your own cloud. So uh, stuff like this I do find quite interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you, you're going to expect it, aren't you? It's, good. it's a really interesting space this year, I think. If we hadn't have had chat GPT come along, I think we'd have had a very quiet six months, don't you? Yeah, it's certainly pushing the boundaries a little bit. 
I'll say it again. Make sure you verify it. Should we move on? Yeah, so next up, I pop this one in there. Because I think we talked about it last week, or if not, a few weeks ago. So Elon Musk has named a new Twitter CEO, which was something I think we picked up saying, oh, he said he was going to do it, and he hasn't. I wonder if it's taken him longer to get hold of somebody and, you know, to, to sell them the story and obviously agree, agree terms, maybe. But I'm going to pronounce her name incorrectly, so apologies. But Linda Yacarino, I don't know if I said that correct. But she, I think it's Yacarino or possibly Yacarino. Okay, well, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. But she's she's been announced as new Twitter boss and she's come over as former head of advertisers in NBC Universal, which is really interesting, but possibly points to the direction that Twitter is going to be heading. And obviously they're going to want more advertisers. They're probably trying to prop themselves up after shedding lots of advertisers and users that are posting to the platform. But I'm glad he's actually gone through with what he said he would do. It could only be a positive for Twitter, surely. I would hope so, and I think it is interesting. It does point in the direction of the company if you're appointing a marketing person to be the CEO. I do slightly wonder what him being hands-off actually means for Twitter. Well, he's now going to be the CTO, so Executive Chairman and CTO. So, sadly, I fear, still far too much involved, but it is what it is. What I did find interesting is the tweet that he put out when he announced her role was he and this is quoting him looking forward to working with linda to transform this platform into x the everything app i don't really know what the everything app's meant to be do you no and i worry about elon musk being a cto i don't think he actually understands the technology well enough to be a cto or something like this as has been apparent from some of his tweets so no i don't understand what he means by the app i don't really understand this i do know there was a lot of backlash to elon recruiting a woman into this role which is just ridiculous let's face it what sort of world is this but a lot of the followers he's attracted since then you know are extremely right wing and have particular views about this and even just the fact he's appointed a woman has caused all sorts of furore within twitter so a well done him for actually surprising us all and you know and moving slightly away from that sort of right wing push he was taking but I don't know where he's going with this. I, I wonder if the damage is done and Twitter sort of gradually. The, the hole below the waterline is just taking on more water, I think. Yeah, I'll be honest. I hadn't even thought about her gender when they announced the appointment. But maybe that's just the world you and I live in. I think it's good he's, he's done what he said he's going to do. Great, he's appointed a woman. That, that, I think that generally is good because so I think I've read, uh, read here it's fewer than 10 Fortune 500 tech, tech companies are headed up by a woman. So that, he has done the right thing there, I think. It will be interesting to see where she goes. And I wonder how much autonomy she's going to be given. So hopefully she can do it. But it's got to be hard, surely, if your CTO is the guy who owns the company. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's, it is a bit... I hope she's given the freedom to actually do something interesting with the company and he doesn't think, oh, I'll just take it back off you. Because he has a tendency of just firing people, as we've seen. So I hope she's given enough mileage to go on and do what needs to be done and maybe turn the ship around a little bit. Yeah, agreed. The only way she can go is up with it, so best of luck to her. Absolutely, best of luck to her. Moving on, a little story that was quite big news last week is that some Pro applications have come to the iPad at last. And what we mean by that is that Final Cut Pro, which is their video editing application, and Logic Pro, which is their audio editing application, have finally come to the iPad. Were you surprised slash excited about this news? Yeah, so I'm I'm really pleased about this one. Even though neither of these apps are really for myself, I don't shoot video, I've got no musical abilities whatsoever, but I see it really positive. 
that these apps are coming to the platform. It is kind of worrying it's taken Apple eight years since the announce, announcement of the iPad Pro to get some Pro apps on it. And these are first party apps, so they're written by Apple and they've been on the Mac for a long, long time. So it's great to see them actually invest in the iPad, bring those apps there. I mean, for years, people have been predicting this will be the year of your final cut on the iPad. And fair play, Apple have done it. They kept it very secret as well, which is always amazes me. Do you not think that not one word of this leaked at all, which is fantastic? And they come out on the 23rd. They actually need reasonably powerful iPads to run, but I'm really pleased to see their commitment to the platform. And I have put another link in there about what's potentially coming in iPad OS 17. And it feels like this could be the year that iPad OS grows up and actually can do a lot more than what all it's ever been able to do in the past. So yeah, I think it's a good, good time for the iPad. I've still got a lot of faith in it. I use mine every day. So fingers crossed there's more to come. What did you think? I'm glad to see them. I think the limitations of the device itself that are going to make it challenging to work with pro applications in this way. One of the things you can do with a computer, with, an, with a Mac that you can do with an iPad, is source multiple audio inputs at the same time. So you can have a microphone running and a guitar running and a podcast and a voice recorder running and source them all. And the Mac is sophisticated enough to be able to handle all those audio inputs. The iPad isn't, to the best of my understanding. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So immediately you've got a limitation over the iPad-based version of it compared to what you got with the Mac version. So what you just said, I think, is right. You would hope that when iPad OS is announced and they talk about that the next 17 on stage, that they go, oh, by the way, we've opened it up. And if you plug a USB-C hub into this, you can have as many audio inputs as a Mac can because it's got the same chip in it. So something like that I'd want to see. And at that point, I'm becoming a bit more interested. I mean, I edit the podcast in Logic Pro, so I am by no means an expert, but I can do the basics with it. And I could see myself editing a podcast on Logic Pro, but one of the things it's designed to do is to have all those audio tracks and record them at the same time. And I don't think the iPad Pro version, in my current understanding of the iteration, is going to let you do that. So that's a significant limitation. Flipping to Final Cut Pro, you need a lot of storage for video stuff. And fair enough, my iPad's got a lot of storage, yours does too. But often on Macs and the rest of it, you will have network attached storage, you'll have very fast SSDs attached to them, and lots of them. You might have a scratch disk, you might have other disks that you're working to to export things to. And again, you're running through this, this through a device that's got one USB port. So again, I think there's a challenge here between the way we traditionally use a computer to edit video or audio and what the iPad is going to let us do. Yeah, so a couple of points then. So one, you can plug external storage in. You can plug hubs in now and they work. Like when I'm back out in my shed, I've got the studio display. I use that as a hub. So some of that is resolvable. What is interesting though in the link is as well, there's potential iPadOS 17. And the five things that they've said are coming is external monitor webcam support, which big tick for me, audio output output source settings, which is what obviously you've alluded to, and stream multiple audio video sources at once, when stage managers on so again some good stuff there they've said resizable dock as well and, and the fact you could sleep the ipad screen so you could just use it like in clamshell mode so for me it feels like if these come true this is potentially the ipad growing up a little bit and actually not quite on a par with the mac obviously because it can do a lot more but actually getting some of the basics that mac's been able to do for the last 20 odd years so i think it's looking quite good and it's great to see that they haven't given up on it and they are investing the effort no, it's fair, and I don't want to seem too negative about it. I think it is good that they've brought these applications to the iPad because it shows the power the device is capable of. And as, again, as an editor, 
I think the Apple Pencil will give you a lot of fine grain control that A, may be missing, and B, wouldn't be possible if you were just jumping on that plane to take the final cut of the movie to somewhere in New Zealand or something like that. This will let you have the ability to do that on the go without you know packing a, a massive computer and a bunch of hard drives in your bag, possibly. You know, the, 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 if, I don't know what the speed of transfer on and off iPad is like. I'm sure it's fine, but there's, there's, there's considerations there. The other consideration, of course, is that you buy Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro now, and you've just bought it. It's something. It's not cheap. It's like four hundred ninety-nine pounds or something like that if you pay the, pay the full price for it. And then you get multiple years of updates. Uh, the, I, the, the copy I bought two years ago is still the newest copy. I've had point releases. I get point releases every time of the thing. This is going to be a subscription offer for both of these things. Now, it's not a huge amount of money. It's forty-nine dollars per year. But that is a consideration to people who've just bought the app and got on with it before now. That to have it separate to their iPad, their Mac account, they now need to be paying a monthly subscription in order to have it on their iPad or their either app on their iPad. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, and it's the first time Apple have done this. And obviously, Apple are chasing service revenue. Surely the Mac's going to go the same way. Like That's going to have to happen at some point because they, a long time ago, changed the Mac pricing to lower it as to what you've paid. And then they've done nothing with it. And so they're not getting any reoccurring revenue from it. So I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, there, w- there will be a change in the Mac store pricing in the next, I don't know, 12 months, let's say. I wonder if pros will tolerate that. They're, your Hollywood movie studios that use Avid or the Adobe uh, uh, competitors, I mean, you pay monthly subscription for the Adobe competitor, I think. But Avid, you don't. You pay your upgrade pricing every couple of years. And I think a lot of the open source editors are good enough that you're, they're just going to have that workflow and they're going to stick to it. And I worry slightly about Apple pushing down the subscription pass just as a way of getting revenue, that it will begin to impact on other parts of their business because we've talked on this podcast, I'm beginning to get subscription fatigue. Some things I don't mind paying for, other things I'm not going to pay a subscription for. So, example, and we will come back to the Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro in a minute, Raycast, which I've recommended as an app on this pod- podcast, has just released a Raycast Pro, Pro version where they're expecting you to pay $12 a month for a couple of AI features and things like that. I'm not going to pay that. I'll just go back to using Alfred if that's the case. Raycast is good, but it's not so much better than what came before for the one-off pricing thing that I did that I'm going to pay $12 a month as well as all the other apps I now need to pay subscriptions for and the streaming things. So, again, I worry that they're pushing down a path in too many, you know, towards subscriptions too fast for a lot of people. They need to bring people with them a little bit. And these apps, which initially seem quite cheap at that price per month, they need to demonstrate they're good enough to, for the pros to get the work done on them. Or are they just Garage Band or an iMovie with slightly shinier knobs on? You know, there's, there's a lot to be proven here. Yeah, so two points I'd say. I think that's why they've done annual pricing because obviously if you're a company, you probably don't want monthly five pounds coming out every month you just want to pay pay a lump for the year so i reckon that's why they've priced it like they have and secondly i think it's not just if the app's any good but also can you get things done on the operating system that you need to get done so it's going to be interesting to see what the feedback is when we start seeing some updates i'm assuming this will be great for youtubers to do content on because obviously they all edit videos so i'm assuming uh, mkbht will be out there with a review over the next few weeks yeah, do you think it's that much more hassle for him to stick a you know, 16-inch MacBook Pro in his bag than it is a big iPad? No, and obviously he knows what he's doing on, on the Mac because he's done it for a long time. But I'd be interested to see what they, how they convert their workflow over to it and actually, is it additive or is it more of a subtractor? Hmm. 
Time will tell. It's an important story. I'm glad we've spent a bit of time on it, really, because th this could really show what's to come for the iPad, or this could be the beginning of the end for the iPad in some ways. I guess we'll see. I think that's fair. I'm hoping it shows some promise, though, and hopefully it means there's some more good apps coming. Okay, moving on. Back to our friend Elon a little bit. There's a story in Ars Technica this week about them cutting application, sorry, user accounts that haven't been logged into in a while, and Musk has issued an ultimatum to inactive Twitter users, log in or be purged. So basically, they want to recycle the usernames for app, for user accounts that aren't logging in. What did you think of this story? I thought about it, I thought, I wonder why they're doing that. And then I thought, actually, that'd be really good for me, because I've got an account with them that's been suspended, and I can't delete it, and I can't use it. So it's been stuck in limbo, so actually that will get purged. And then I thought a bit more about it, I thought, I wonder if they're doing this, because they're going to have lots of people now that have their name reserved, like you or me, that have our old Twitter accounts, but we're in essence squatting. So I wonder if they're doing this to try and drive activity back from all those dormant accounts. And so I think that's it's a ploy to do that, rather than actually to clean up the database, if that makes sense. It does, and I think it's kind of a threat as well. There was a little post, and it's actually in the link to our article as well, where he threatened to reassign NPR, so that's the news organization in America. We're going to reassign NPR's account to someone else if it stopped posting. I mean, if that's not... It'd be a shame if something happened to these lovely, you know, windows of yours kind of behavior. I don't think I've ever seen anything so blatant, actually. It's just threat. Yeah, it is interesting, though, because if you think about it, something like NPR or BBC News here in the UK, they're going to have had their Twitter handle plastered over, you know, vans and on various streams and videos and things people have downloaded and I guess on printed matter. So they're going to want to keep they're going to want to keep their account active, aren't they? So they don't lose their handle because, it, you know, that people are going to see their handle for years and years to come. So it, I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, and that's what makes it so creepy, actually, that, that he's saying you've got to stay with us. And it's not good enough to log in. You actually need to post as well. NPR left Twitter for a reason. They didn't like the way that it was going. They didn't like all the sort of policy choices that it was making. And, of course, the threat is it gets recycled to somebody else who isn't NPR and then starts tweeting in their name effectively and using those Twitter handles that, you know, that like you said, are on the various corporate graphics and on the things that are a couple of year, years old and all the rest of it. And it's, I, I think it's deeply shady, actually, that for Musk to do this kind of thing. Better to let it go away with a bit of reputation left to it than just assigning it to some domain score that's going to turn it into a porn site or something. It, it, it's, it's just not very professional behaviour. Do you think he's given up on trying to leave with any dignity, though? I think it feels like he's just going for everything. I think he's a child. Agreed. <laughs> in fact, I think a child would behave better. Anyway, nothing more to say about that. Log in or get purged. It's, it's worth a little read. Moving on, I'll, just a little story from The Verge again. We've given The Verge a fair bit of traffic this week. About six months on from the iPhone 14 Pro, it's an article on everything he loves and hates about phones, and I just wondered if you'd seen or read this article. Yeah, I did read a bit of it. I was just going to call out, actually, The Verge do some great photography, don't you think? If you just go through the article, they've got some really nice pictures in there. They do? Um, they do. I mean, th go on. No, I was just going to say it was quite interesting because in the story, they're talking about following a sports score and actually having it on your home screen means you're not opening your phone, going into an app, and then you may get lost and go off into another app. You can just look at the home screen, which I guess is kind of cool for the user, but... I guess if you were a company trying to chase engagement in the app, it's probably not as good because you don't need to go into the app, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, it does. I think 
I see that, and maybe that's a reason why not all companies. Are, the example is sort of live activities that you know work really well on the Magic Island. I don't have an iPhone 14. It's Magic Island. Dynamic Island. Uh, sorry, Dynamic Island. Dynamic Island DI at the top or up here on the lock screen when, the, when it's locked. And I think live activities are great. Having been flying a fair bit recently and my app Flighty has a live activity for, it gives me various countdowns for gates being available or baggage belts being available or, or, or anything that's happening within it. It's just a terrific feature. And as does Deliveroo and, and Domino's Pizza in the UK, if you order these things, you'll get a little countdown as to what's going on where your order is. If you've ordered an Uber, how far away the, the car is before it comes to get you. These live activities are truly transformative, and it's probably even better on your phone where your lock screen is actually always live. You don't even need to tap it to wake it up to see what's going on. So it is a bit of a shame that we're not seeing more of this kind of stuff. And do you think that's what it is? Do you think it's just application? Uh, application developers want you to engage more with their app and not just passively consume the content from them. Yeah, I guess there's a couple of things here. One, I've not seen many apps with it, so I do have the iPhone 14 Pro, but I wonder if that's part of the problem in that actually the dynamic island just isn't in that many devices. So when you're, you know, say you're a big company and you're looking at adding a feature, if there's not many people in your user base they've got the iPhone 14 Pro if you know if we make up say 5% of the overall user base I think it's going to take a while for a lot of third parties to catch up so I've only used well, I've probably used very few third party apps that use the Dynamic Island I can't even think of any because I've never tried Deliveroo or, or any of those sorts of companies because I don't get them where I live so I wonder if it's going to take a little bit longer and actually maybe in a couple of years time once say the and this is a potential that the dynamic island filters down to the non-pro phones. So if next year, sorry, if this year it's in the iPhone 15 and the 15 Pro, and it's already on the 14 Pro, I think then it will start becoming a bit more prevalent, and then adoption will then ensue from there. But equally, I guess, there was also talk at WWDC that we'd get more first-party apps using it because they didn't know about it last year, and now they know about it. They've baked it in for this year. And so maybe some developers want to see a bit more of that, of how it's being used. But I've I've seen so little with it. I don't use it a huge amount. I do like Apple's implementation of it. I think it's really good. I like when it locks and when you've got low battery and things. I think they've done a great job with it. But I just haven't really used that much, say, like for Formula One that I would watch. And I don't have any other sports apps on there. So I just haven't seen it. Car parking apps also make sense. So you get a countdown, you know, as to when to get your car. Yeah, the app my local council uses has this as well. So I think it's My Permit is the name of the app. And as soon as you've set your, tar your parking ticket up, you get the countdown for how long it's valid for. You know, again, without having to unlock your phone. So actually, I've seen quite a few apps with it. I'm obviously just lucky in the apps I use. And it's it's a terrific feature. I just think it should be su better supported by more things. And obviously, you're not seeing them, so not in the apps you're, you're after. But the ones that are supporting it are doing a really good job. And it's good to see that kind of innovation without having to unlock your phone. And it feels very natural that I don't need a push notification every single time. I don't need my watch to buzz. I just want to keep a vague eye on it. Is it how, how long have I got left? Well, I've got an hour. Fine, I've got plenty of time. Rather than pick the phone up, unlock it, click on the app, look at the app, or wait for the push notification. So I, I, I'm a big fan of live activities, and I'd like to see an expansion of them across other things. I agree with you on everything you've just said. <laughs> Fair enough. Moving on. We've had a few rumours about the Apple headset, because it's meant to be arriving next month now, and they seem to be good to go. Is that what the story is? It's well prepared for the headset announcement next month. Yeah, so I was actually thinking we haven't had much around this in the last sort of three to four weeks that we've been podcasting, but according to Minchi Kuo, apparently Apple are ready, ready to announce, and they're well prepared, so... 
I just thought it was interesting. We've had a few rumours, but apparently they're all good to go. So it's, it's going to be interesting. Unless anything breaks in the next two weeks, I think it's going to be quite a surprise on the day. Obviously, we've had a few rumours a while ago, but I still don't think any of us really know really what it's going to look like, what the key features are, how the operating system is going to work, and you know why what's like going to be the must-have thing for it. So I'm quite excited by it because I like it when there's not when it hasn't been spoiled, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There's been a story today, actually, about a chap called Lucky, Palmer Lucky, who has said the Apple headset is so good. And he was involved with Meta and the Oculus... Sorry, he's the Oculus Rift creator. Uh, he's a bit of a controversial character, I think, so I don't want to give him too much airtime. But somehow he claims he's had his hands on it, unless it's all just, you know, spoofing people. But his contacts have said that Apple have high confidence in the product's launch, and that lines up with this Minchi Quo article that we've referenced in the show notes. So... $3,000 device about to drop, it would seem. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting when we were talking about the Pro apps for iPad. It feels a bit like clearing the deck, because that should be the kind of thing that you'd expect them to be talking about at a WWDC. You know, in line with our new changes to the operating system, we've got, you know, Stage Manager version 2, and now we've got all these Pro apps lined up to go like this, and they'd spend 15 minutes talking about those. They may still f- spend 5 minutes talking about them. But it does feel like we're making space for a big announcement of some sort, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if we get any more announcements as well ahead of time, but it certainly feels like something's coming. Definitely. Well, I'll put that link to the Tech Radar article on Palmer Lucky as well. Like I said, I don't, I don't want to give him too much airtime, but it's definitely a story that's worth keeping an eye on. Any other st- news stories, Chris? No, I think we're on to media. Media then. So you've popped in the Crowded Room trailer. So what, what have we got here? So what we've got here is Tom Holland, Amanda Seyfried, sort of psychological murder thriller where a, a young boy is arrested in looks like 70s New York based on the, on the style and the police cars and everything that's in it. And it looks like a bit of a murder mystery with her tracking down what he's done. Did he murder these girls, didn't he? What's been going on? Is it all in his head? So a bit of a psychological slash murder thing. But it also contains Jason Isaacs. And hello to Jason Isaacs if he's listening, because that's just something you've got to say when you say Jason Isaacs. And between the three of those, that's a film I've just got to watch. And is this, where's this coming out? Is it a cinema or is it an Amazon film? Oh, I apologise. It's, it's, it's Apple TV+. Plus. Oh, even better. Get in. I, I didn't know. I haven't seen it because my internet's so degraded at the moment. I'm not, not going to risk looking. So, okay, that, well, that sounds quite good then. So at least we get that. Do you know when it comes out? I don't, but I'll try and get that information while you're telling us about the next thing. So I was just briefly going to say there is another Oppenheimer trailer, which is Christopher Nolan's film. It comes out in the summer and looks super interesting. I've n- obviously, I know what the film's about. It's about obviously building the atom bomb, but it, it's hard to know what he's going to do with the story on it. And I do genuinely quite like a Christopher Nolan film, so super interested to see where it goes and would love to go to the cinema to see a Nolan film. I did struggle a bit with Tenant. I keep meaning to go back and rewatch it because I love some of the cinematography on it but struggle with the story whereas I'm hoping Oppenheimer is more him going back back to some of his, his previous style of film yeah it stars Kelly and Murphy as well doesn't it Oppenheimer who is always very watchable and is a bit of a muse for, David, for Christopher Nolan I think he's in all of the films although maybe not in Tenet actually but he's certainly in all the other ones so yeah I'm quite looking forward to it I've got to say it's an interesting story there's quite a lot I think Matt Damon's in it as well also a generally very watchable actor and he's always worth worth a watch Christopher Nolan so I'm quite keen to see that too a little bit of immediate follow up Crowded Room on Apple TV Plus is out on June the 9th 2023 so not long to wait for that yeah we've got some good things coming out at the moment haven't we 
And just a very brief bit of follow-up that I realised I should have put in the show notes but haven't is it was the TV BAFTAs last night in the UK and I was sad to say that Slow Horses didn't win any as far as I could make out. Both the actor that plays River and Gary Oldman's character. Well, Gary Oldman was nominated for Best Actor, River was nominated for Best Supporting, neither of them won, which was unfortunate. However, Bad Sisters won both Best Supporting Actress for one of the sisters and Best Comedy TV Show, I think, was the category it won in as well. So well done, Apple, for for supporting that. And they did, Sharon Horgan, the the writer of it, did give a shout out to the two people at Apple that had helped it happen and said there that they were filming another series. So I thought that was quite... Yeah, that is good that that they've won some. I'm gutted that Gary Oldman has not won that BAFTA there because he is fantastic. So that is a little bit disappointing. To be be fair, it was category and Ben Wishaw actually won Best Actor for This Is Gonna Hurt which is a BBC document, BBC show dramatised from a doctor's book about maternity services in the NHS in the UK. Ben Wishaw also plays Paddington and Q in the last round of Bond films so he's also a terrific actor and it must be very hard to make these decisions because you've got an up and coming actor who you know is just doing increasingly great work and then you've got Gary Oldman who has been let's face it celebrated over his career and still has time with most more slow more slow horses coming out to to win this maybe next year so i can understand why they might have made this choice yeah that's fair and he doesn't love Paddington so i, I agree with you he is a fantastic actor too so if it's not going to be Gary Oldman happy days with his Paddington fair enough I was just going to comment, and I have, I've seen a bit of it, but still is out. And this is the documentary about Michael J. Fox. Super interesting, actually, to, to watch some of it and to see how he is now. And it's obviously it obviously documents part of his rise to fame, and then obviously find out he had Parkinson's. It is a bit weird in that they've obviously gone back and refilmed some shots with a character playing him, for, and you don't see his face, but you see him from behind and things. It's just interesting how they've tried to dramatize some of the stories that they're talking about but really well done and seems very michael j fox seems very open about talking about parkinson's and how he struggles with it and pros and cons and all that it's really interesting because i don't know a lot about parkinson's if i'm honest so it's i find it quite interesting and would recommend to anybody that's interested fair enough I will have to watch it. I am quite interested and I keep forgetting that it's there. It sounds like something I want to prepare for a little bit to watch, but no, that's good. It's good. And Race Across the World. It's finished. It finished last week. I'm gutted because I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I won't give any spoilers away, but the show's finished. The race is done. The winners have have made it to the end first. And they then did a reunion episode where they all got back together around the table and just recovered some of it. So I thought it was really well done and genuinely really enjoyed the whole show and I'm a bit gutted it's no longer on well hopefully they have at the end of it put out a call for more people to do another one so we're going to get another one at least I agree with you I watched the last two episodes on planes one coming back from Boston one coming back from Belfast terrific I didn't for for the Belfast flight particularly I was annoyed it landed and I still had five minutes to go because I still didn't know who'd won they do a really good job with that with, with keeping it close and it was an amazingly close race at the end of this one so Canada looks beautiful I thought it was a great television very compelling for lots of reasons and yeah I'm with you it was terrific yeah it's very well done and to be fair I think it's it's really well shot considering it's a show on the move and it's really well edited to keep the suspense going right to the end so I would recommend to anybody and Canada's just full of the nicest people that's all I've learned from it 
I'm sure being there with a the camera crew helps with a little bit of this stuff. It does make you look a little bit more honest. If they're saying, yeah, we're filming something for the BBC, you're probably more likely to get a lift. That's me being cynical. At the same time, I don't think it was all that because there was certainly a lot of people just stood in gas stations and not getting anywhere as well. So yeah, I thought I thought it's a terrific show. It does look really good. You know, it's amazing. If you go and look at Charlie Berman and Ewan McGregor's last long way up on Apple TV+, Plus, how good that looks compared to the first versions of it. SD, videotape, and then moving through GoPros and the other cameras we have these days where they can record very high defini definition content very easily, and it definitely benefits from that. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier to film 4K now than ever, isn't it? Everything's caught up, so... But fantastic. Would recommend. Yep. I agree. And just one last story that I thought was interesting about Amazon has plans to sell some of its original Prime Video content to other streaming platforms. So they have invested quite a lot of money in their own stuff, and the examples given in the article are Marvel Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Hunters, All the Old Knives, and more. But we also know that they have Lord of the Rings, and they have things like Citadel. So, And, of course, they own the James Bond franchise as well. So there is a lot of stuff on Amazon TV Prime that you think another streaming network might be interested in, but doesn't that dilute the Amazon Prime brand? But I guess, though, if, if they haven't sold a Prime subscription somebody, they want them to watch their content. This is just another way of getting them to watch it, I guess. But I guess it depends on what the what the licensing deals are, but I'm not surprised by this. Are you? I am a little bit. You don't see Netflix you know, doing it. You don't see Apple TV doing it. So I... They're not that far behind Netflix when it came to streaming media, and they're certainly one of the bigger brands. I think Disney is probably the girl in the room at this point with all the stuff that they've got. So this, this to me, is the first move in the smaller streaming platforms beginning to maybe consolidate a little bit and sort of cross-licensing content. So that is definitely interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, though, will anybody pick it up, you know, if they've not all got enough content, because they all seem to be going, you know, generating their own. So will this... A, get picked up, and B, will it then spark others to do the same? Will you then get Netflix content on Apple or on, on Amazon? Who knows? Yeah, it, it's a fascinating way for things to go. Of these, the only one I've watched is Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is very funny. It's a really well-done show. It's set in the sort of 50s, first female comedian, and it is high-value content. I could see it doing quite well on Apple TV+, Plus because, again, it looks terrific. It's got that sort of Mad Men kind of vibe to it, where, where it is accurately, I presume, accurately reflecting that sort of period in history. So it's probably quite compelling for another streamer. And who's to say that, you know, Sony self roll kind to Apple? Amazon could just be another studio that sells their stuff to another distributor. So it's not that big a deal in some ways. But it does sh represent a shift in the market, I think. Yeah, no, I see what you mean, but like I say, maybe they're exploring other ways if they're not getting more subscribers. Just another way they can keep Wall Street happy by generating more income. Tell us about Gran Turismo 7 for games. Okay, so just very briefly, there's been another update and some more cars. I love how many updates Gran Turismo gets, and they're all for free. There's no more paying for downloadable content. I just think it's fantastic. That was all I was going to say. It's just great how many updates you get getting for the one-off purchase. So if somebody does like games cars go and get gt7 because it is worth it when it's on sale it's it's a lot of game for the money it is 
it's still quite pretty. I find it a bit empty at the moment though. I sort of go in and I go, new car, same tracks, not an awful lot of new challenges or anything. I said it before, I'll say it again. I don't like the focus on the super hyper fast cars. I'd rather they put in some boring VW Beetles and things like that and some interesting races for them. I think they are certainly missing the whimsy on their particular implementation of this. I think that's fair because the non-seriously fast cars are a lot easier to drive and a lot more accessible, probably for the likes of you and me that aren't, aren't serious around it, don't have a steering wheel. So I don't know, I'm just impressed with how much play I've got out of the game on the whole. Fair enough. And I, I think we talked about it last week. I like the 120 frames per second update they did. I think it looks terrific. I don't like it because the cars in front are blurry. I don't see it. Maybe it's because my eyes are blurry anyway. You've obviously got better vision than me. Everything just looks blurry to me, so it's no worse. It just looks a lot smoother. I must screenshot it. Remind me when I'm back at home and I'll send you a screen grab with and without. Fair enough. Nintendo released a game. Yeah, so Nintendo have been quite quiet on the Switch lately, I think. But they have released Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which has come six years after the last Legend of Zelda game, which was Breath of the Wild, which was a launch title for the Nintendo Switch. I've not played either of them. I don't know if you have, but it looks really good and I've heard a lot about it. I'm tempted, but I just don't know if it's my kind of game, if I'm honest. I played Breath of the Wild. I have Breath of the Wild for the Switch. It's quite inventive. I've never really been such a huge fan of Zelda games. I never worked out why they were called Zelda games, because Zelda's the princess not and Link is the main character. They're all about Link. Anyway, this Zelda game has been extremely well reviewed. I don't think I've seen anything less than sort of 90% for it in any of the... Even The Guardian, I think, were giving it very high ratings. So it's a very well reviewed game, as was Breath of the Wild six years ago, which still stands up. It's a very pretty looking game. There's a lot of freedom within it. You can do lots of things. i got to say, I don't think the Switch does these things justice particularly. I don't think the, the, the screens are really good enough for that sort of real high-density, crisp information that you'd want from a game like this. But the... The gameplay always shines through with Nintendo stuff, so I am giving this a bit of the side eye, thinking this could be quite a good little mobile game to have in my hands from time to time and play with it, in the same way I did with Breath of the Wild. Yeah, I'm probably with you on this. I think the programmers who have written Legend of Zelda games for the Switch have done an amazing job to get that massive world working on the Switch and running really well from what I've seen. I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm cautiously interested in it, but I just worried I'd spend £60 on it and wouldn't play it that much. That's my concern, that it's not my kind of game. Yeah, it's a lot of money for a game you're not sure you're going to play. So, yeah, I understand your caution, really. At the same time, I think Breath of the Wild was such a influential game and shifted so many switches that this could see the switch good for another two or three years frankly um so well done nintendo again focusing on gameplay but it's a lot to hang your premier device on just one game every six one huge game every six years i've obviously had other since but i think with the exception of pokemon there hasn't been anything quite so large mario kart was a given but that mario kart that's on the switch is the same one that was on the wii u effectively yeah, I think you're right. It's amazing how they have shifted so many units. Obviously, we had Super Mario Odyssey, which I thought was fantastic. I love that game. but And there's a few other minor first-party titles, but you're right. There's not that mass, that many from them, but they're so good when they come out. And yet they've managed to yeah get quite a cult following, I think, on the, on the Switch. It'll be interesting what they follow up with, because Nintendo don't have a good batting average when they bring out a second console around the same theme, do they? The Wii U did not do very well even though we had some very clever clever bits around it so it's going to be interesting to see where we go 
Yeah, they're like Star Trek movies. You only do the even ones and the odd ones. You only do the even ones, not the odd ones. Maybe that's the way it works for Nintendo as well. Could be. I hope they, they do well, though, because I want to I see them carry on. Fair play. I talked about Grid Legends last week. Did you get a chance? Yeah, so it transpires I didn't have PlayStation Plus. So I signed up to PlayStation Plus for a month, downloaded Grid Legends. I might keep my PlayStation Plus account. I don't know, but I don't seem to really need it. But I don't know what happens if I cancel my PlayStation Plus account. Do I then lose grid legends so that's just a bit on the mechanics do you know the answer yeah you lose it oh pants anyway so i went down i bought so i've got it and i've downloaded it i've played it a little bit actually i quite enjoyed the arcadiness and one thing that grand Turismo doesn't have is the rewind feature which is actually quite nice because when you've had a cracking race and you cock up a corner it's nice just to roll you back and and do it game around having to do the whole race again but no, I, yeah, I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it is good, I think, especially if you're more of a casual racer. But I enjoyed, enjoyed the range of cars. Like I say, enjoyed the arcade mechanic. And it reminded me a bit of Dirt, which I've got on the PlayStation as well, because obviously it's written by the same people. But really easy game to pick up and just have a quick go on. And it is nowhere near as serious as Gran Turismo. Fair play. I have a little report on a pocket game. I, I've been traveling again this week, as I alluded to last week. I've been in Belfast towards the end of the week, so I didn't get an awful lot of time to play many games. I did get five minutes of Grid Legends on Sunday, and I'm still thoroughly enjoying that. I finished the story mode. So it's, it's quite good fun. I haven't needed the rewind feature. I haven't found it that difficult to play, i got to say. But I do enjoy how pretty it is and the, the way they stitch the story together. The tracks aren't very memorable, but you can't have everything. So I've been playing a little bit of an iPhone game. It's called Pocket City 2. If you ever played SimCity back in the day, or SimCity 2000, I think you'll very much appreciate Pocket City 2. It is $4.99. There is something similar on Apple Arcade that came out last week. Isn't a patch on it, frankly. This is far closer to sort of classic SimCity with zoning and commercial zones, residential, all the rest of it. It's got a gimmick where you can go into it in first-person mode as well and sort of do some tasks yourself as the mayor. I don't like that particularly. I just want to zoom out and build my city and get on with it. Nice little tutorial. Good fun. Looks great. If you're after something without ads, if you buy it, or that isn't too much of a problem, Pocket City 2 is a good show. Sounds good to me, and I too was a big SimCity fan. Fair play. Fair enough. Should we do a main show? Let's do it. Okay, so Google I.O. was last week, at the tail end of last week, and they had a couple of hardware announcements and some software announcements to make. And one of them is some, something you and I have talked about a little bit, in that our interest in foldables, and we talked about the Google Pixel Fold a lot, and it was a thing. They actually announced the Google Pixel Fold. It's a $1,799 device featuring a 5.8-inch OLED outer screen that unfurls to reveal a larger 7.6-inch display with a 120 hertz refresh rate. So that's quite a high-end device. Yeah, after, Any interest in yeah, that? after we spoke about it last week, I was like, oh, I really wish Apple would do one of these now. <laughs> Because you just got me thinking about that. I don't think I'd really thought about it that much up until that point. And yeah. I was like, oh, oh, it'd be great if they did one. I did think about it a bit more. I, I just think it looks really good. However, where was I? I was out on, on the weekend with some friends, and I sat next to somebody, and they had a Google Fold, and it had a big crease down the middle of the screen. And not good, sorry, not a Google Fold, a Samsung Fold. They didn't have a Google Fold no, yet. They had a Samsung so. Fold, and they had a big crease down the middle of the screen, and it wasn't something I knew. But I kind of wanted to ask, is that the Fold 1, 2, or 3, or 4? Because I was just curious to know, do they all go like that after a while? And it was really visible, and I think it would drive me nuts if it was right down the middle of the screen. So I'm curious to know how well the folds actually wear over, you know, the fold in the screen, how well it actually wears over time. 
but I just think this looks a fantastic device and there's a picture there in the Verge article where it's been held in somebody's hand and it looks a really good size when you open it out is that intermediary device so yeah I, th- I think they've done a good job with it the OS looks a bit odd how they've done all the colours but I'm assuming you can theme all that but I would definitely like Apple to do it the more I've thought about it yeah I watched Marquez Brownlee's review of it and the thing you're talking about with the sort of crease on the screen let's face it it's got to fold in some way doesn't it because it, it goes in half compared to that picture you're talking about on the, on the linked article I think the early Samsung and Motorola devices it was more noticeable and it's got less as the generations have gone on but I also think you look past it after a little while as well in the same way we look past the notch on the top of our laptops and our phones and don't see it anymore when you're actually using them I don't the reports I've heard from people is it doesn't bother them the fact there's a crease in the screen and as I say the later ones it's less noticeable anyway so I think that's neither here nor there really the impressive thing with the hardware for this for me is it actually folds completely shut whereas if you look at the early pic- Samsung and Motorola devices there was a bit of a gap between the two two folded screens when you brought them together and they've made the bezels on this bigger that a it's a device you can actually hold I don't mind a thicker bezel on something you've got to hold in your hands you don't want to have your screen on the uh, your, your thumbs on the screen all the time or your fingers all the, on the screen I agree with you I think this is a terrific looking device with very high-end hardware very good cameras two very high quality high refresh rate screens front and back it's a bit pricey I think $1800 is an awful lot of money for a device like this but at the same time we've talked about it with Apple you need to push flagship devices forward and unfortunately that's what it costs to push flagship devices forward our current iPhones are expensive phones I mean you're talking 1100 quid and they don't fold so uh, this is expensive I agree with you slightly on the theme but that is what this version of Android has looked like on, on Google devices. If you go back to the Google Pixel 7, the theme for it was exactly the same as this. So this is just in keeping with their sort of design language at the moment. So I think this is a really compelling device that's slightly overpriced, but if you're in the market for something like this, this has got to be an interesting proposition for you. Yeah, if Apple bought one out at that pr- same price point, say circa $700, that is basically the cost of an iPhone, I don't know, Pro Max and an iPad mini. So, And that's what you're getting for the money so potentially it's, it's doable yeah I'd agree so this is an interesting device and I'm going to keep an eye on it when that you know because all we've got at the moment are sort of first looks people have had it in their hands for about an hour Marquez folded it a lot you know he talked about some of the hardware some of the things he liked some of the things he didn't like all very good I think the second device they announced was a tablet so it's a tablet that's priced at $499. It's a typical Android tablet, but it actually comes with a charging dock as well. And if you look at the charging dock, it's also a speaker. So it's a Google, I think it's Max or whatever the one is below that, that you can stick in your kitchen. You can stick the tablet and it reverts into Google's sort of home mode where it just becomes one of their usual home devices, displaying your upcoming appointments or timers or YouTube or whatever you've got going on in the kitchen. If you grab it off off the stand again, it turns back into a tablet and off you go. I think that's quite an interesting model. The price seems not too bad for me to have, you know, something equivalent to an iPad it's not a pro by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's it's fairly basic hardware from that point of view, but probably good enough. But to come with the stand and the charging dock and actually a half-decent speaker as well, I think it's quite a cool concept. Yeah, I think they've done something really good here. They're obviously challenging the regular iPad for the cost price, but then they've made it work like the Amazon Echo Show. I may have got the name right wrong, where you can have a speaker and a screen and have it docked in essence. But yeah, on this one, you can just pick the screen up and walk away with it. So I think they've done something quite clever there. And actually, that might help it. I hope you garner some some market share. 
that makes sense because it's, it's two things in one isn't it it's, it's that dockable device you can have in your kitchen but equally you can pick it up take it with you and go and sit on the couch so i'll be interested to know how well this sells as well and i hope it does because the tablet market's not been that exciting if you don't buy an ipad and i think apple needs a bit more of a challenger there so hopefully between samsung and google there'll be a bit more activity now which should hopefully push the ipad further on and hopefully help bring it down in cost so that they are more accessible to people yep i go with that and the third hardware announcement was a google pixel 7a so this is what they do they release their high-end google pixel 567 and then a couple of weeks later they released the a well, a couple of months later they released the a variant which is a cheaper one so if you think the top end one's like $800 or something like this, this Google Pixel 7a features Google's latest processor, which is the Tensor G2. So that's their equivalent of, of Apple Silicon. 6.1-inch 1080p display that runs at 90 hertz, so that's good. That's our promotion territory. And the base version of the phone costs $499. It's also 5G. So that just sounds like a very good, slightly higher than mid, mid-range phone with Google software built into it so you're going to get you know the latest updates and all the rest of it it supports millimeter waves so the very fastest version of 5g as I talked about when I was in America again that sounds like a really good device yeah I think they hit a great price point and yeah and I'm sure it's well made and yeah I wish well we've talked about it before it's Pete Apple aren't playing that well in this space yeah the basic basic iphone 14 is we're getting in the region of 750 quid aren't we so there's there's a real gulf between a high quality mid-range product as google see it and as apple see it yeah definitely they also released a few other things so google search is getting a major update it's getting ai snapshots so it's getting a generate search generative experience so you'll see ai powered answers with your search results this isn't a surprise based on what they've been doing with bard and the competition they're facing from microsoft so that's using their language model, which we already talked about in the show. It's called PAM2. It's also an LLM. So that will gradually get rolled out. So it's obviously an innovation at the Google search. I'm not surprised they're bringing these things together particularly. And at the same time, they're making BARD, which is their version of ChatGPT, available to everyone. So not just invite only anymore. Anything surprising in that for you? I don't think anything surprising. I'd love to know what they have planned for the year before Microsoft announced all their co-pilot things. I wonder how much of this is... A planned or B is just reactive because they want to keep up. Yeah, I'd agree with you. It feels a bit pushed out the door to me. That's the impression that we're getting, but I guess there's only so so much you can push out the door these days when you're so big. It sure it takes time and quality assurance and, and all of that. But who who knows? I guess we never know the real story. But it is interesting. I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad Microsoft's again, I think it's healthy for two big companies to have competition, yeah. so it's good to see google doing something like microsoft but in their own way so hopefully the, they will push each other forwards i hope so too and i hope they start to get more things right and the last feature to talk about in the ai space i just think it's quite interesting really it's not just ai isn't just coming to google search it's also coming bringing these features to android phones as well for example one of them is called magic compose so it will give you the message app the ability to reply to text using responses suggested by ai this is quite interesting if it can see something from your mum and it's got a couple of questions in it and it knows the responses based on your calendar, for example, and can give you a template answer to that based on what the question has been from your mum. That's quite cool, actually. That's quite a useful thing if you can do that kind of stuff to make use of the smarts of the phone in a more clever way. I mean, we've bemoaned this with Apple before now that they don't really make the device smart. You know, you can dictate into it and you can increasingly do manipulative things with your with your voice to, te- to text. But stuff like this, making use of AI and making use of the device's sensors, we've talked about it with the watch as well, 
they've really sort of lacked with. So I think this is quite this kind of thing sounds quite interesting. Is this not though similar to what Microsoft do in Teams? You know, it, it pops up recommended words that you can respond with, and the Apple Watch does it in Messages, doesn't it? It will come up with some pre-baked things, but I can't remember if the ones on the watch are context aware or whether they're just a standard list. Whereas I think Teams does use AI to do this and has done for about the last year. So, you know, if, you, if you're messaging somebody, it'll go, you know, give you a suggestion like, do you want to say thank you when, when they've done something for you and they, they've just confirmed it? And I've seen it do that a few times and actually it's written it how I would write it, if that makes sense. So I'm not sure if this is much different than what we've had before. Maybe it's got some more smarts about it. I hope it does have more smarts about it. I mean, that's what I was alluding to. What, I, what I'd want to see here is it knows what's in my Google Calendar. Not that I use Google Calendar, but if I did. And, you know, the question in the text is, can we meet up at 2 o'clock on the 24th? And it goes, look, look in your diary for you, and it goes, no, no, you've already got a meeting then, but you have got a spot at 1 o'clock on the 24th, and would automatically propose that in the text message for you. That's the kind of thing that you want these things to do, not just yeah, cool, or give you no, not right now, which is pretty much the only responses, canned responses you get on the watch. So do you see where I'm going with that sort of subtle difference between it being smart and making use of the resources on the phone as opposed to just giving, oh, well, this this text I've got has an angry tone, therefore I'm going to give you, you know, slightly less inflammatory language to reply with, something like that. It's actually baking in and using that sort of what else it knows that's going on on your phone. Yeah, it's kind of like version 3. You've got like version 1, which is canned responses, which I think is what message on the watch does. And then you've got version 2, which is maybe slightly contextually aware of tone. And then I guess version 3 is, you know, aware of not just the tone of the message, but also what you're doing in your calendar and other, you know, aware of other data sources on the device that you're using. Yeah, that. And then the last feature in the AI thing is that you'll be able to describe a wallpaper. So you can talk about an image, you can say that's the kind of image I want for my background, and it will create you an image based on that. So very like DALI or Midjourney or one of these generative image engines just baked into your phone, which is gimmicky, but also kind of cool. You know, if you want a picture of melting clocks in the style of DALI, the artist with birds on them and that, it could create you that kind of thing as opposed to just the stock wallpapers that come with it. So that's just whimsical, I think, but fun. Yeah, I think it's really good how some of this stuff's getting super accessible and so that regular users will be using all this AI, but yet they won't really, you know, they won't really know the technicalities behind it. I think this is fantastic. Yeah, good. And there's a bunch of other software features, but I think we've talked about them enough a little bit. One other sort of very quick feature I just wanted to pile through was there was a big launch last week of from Google again, actually. These things are related that you can now use a passkey to secure your Google account, which I did. And I know I sent the link to you because it's the first time I've actually been prompted to create a passkey. Have you had one yet? Did you try this? No, I don't have a Google account. <laughs> so I haven't done, I haven't created any passkeys yet. I'm just really surprised though that Apple haven't done this because obviously they announced passkey support last June, but yet their own websites don't seem to do passkey. So it's interesting that Google have been the first to do it. Yeah, and they went quite hard at it, actually. Every time I logged into my Google account, it was going, hey, do you know you can have a passkey now? And it actually failed the first time I tried to do it on my, my iPhone, because obviously I'm not using a Pixel device or anything. But when I logged in in Safari, I scrolled to the bottom, I clicked create a passkey. I got a very short box explaining what a passkey was and how it wouldn't just be held to just a passkey at this point if I didn't entirely trust it. And now my iPhone is a passkey for my Google account. So that was reasonably painless at the end. 
and I have cross-device authentication. So, you know, the QR code is displayed there, and I can log into whatever with it. So it was all a bit too easy, really. What happens if you lose the passkey? Because I'm assuming that's baked into your iPhone, say. So what happens if you lose that iPhone, and then you go and log in on a new iPhone? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. It's something I need to do a little bit more reading on. For the moment, the other authentication methods are still available for my Google account. So I can still go in. I've got a two-factor code built into one password as well, you know, generated from the QR code. So they haven't taken away the other means of doing it because I think that's not an entirely solved problem with passkeys yet. But like you, Apple were the company that talked about passkeys first. One password was said they were going to be able to account for them within their devices, within their, their ecosystem, and neither have done that yet. So Google, to be fair to them, have just quietly got on with this and... It's interesting to me that there was a big hoo-ha with the announcement, but you know, here we are, and Google are the first company to do it. Yeah, it's interesting seeing as Apple are the security company. I'm just curious to know how it plays out. And you know, like with my say my Microsoft Work account, I've got a password on it, I've got two-factor on it. I can authenticate it through the Authenticator app as well. Are we just going to end up with accounts that have got multiple ways of logging in, or are passkeys actually going to replace passwords? I guess we don't know yet. I guess we don't know yet. And of course, the point of all this is so you don't have to fall back to the QR code and then to your password and all the rest of it. It does do the fingerprint or the face authentication. It's your device. It knows it's you. You just log in. So you don't need to enter any of those things. And that sounds terrific as long as you have got the fallback, I think. So exactly in the situation you've described if I lose my iPhone, I can still get into my Google account in another way. Or I buy an Android phone, or I buy a Windows phone, or something like that down the line, and that can also become my passkey device. So there's a few things still to be answered, but I'm, I'm all there for the first part of this, which is to make the whole management of this an awful lot easier based on who I am and what I've got in my hand, which, let's face it, is, the point, is more secure than what most people have anyway. But yeah, for, the, for now, and probably forever, you do need these fallback methodologies as well as to, as to what's going to happen. What's the resilience? What about SIM swap attacks? There's a whole bunch of stuff there we need to think about within this, but it's the first tentative steps in this way, and I felt safe enough doing it because I had that fallback and the, the articles I'd read about it. So I, it's interesting, and it's a little vision of the future, and we've been talking about it for a while in the same, same way you talked about matter over and over. I think it's important that we try these things when they come out just to see, you know, eat our own dog food. Yeah, definitely. No, I don't want to do it and try it out when, like I said, probably when Apple do it or, or some other companies. But you still need a password, though. And I think that's the thing is, how do we get away from passwords? Because you're still falling back on your password and logging in with MFA should your passkey not work. So it's how do we actually replace a password? Because that, that, that's what has been talked about for years and years in security. Right, let's move on from passwords and authenticate in other ways. But we've never really got there yet, have we? Yeah, because the ecosystem for making these passkeys importable, exportable, cross-device, it's not there yet. And you almost want that piece in place before the companies start implementing it. But I understand the sort of the corporate requirement just to get on and do it. Because let's face it, internally, Google have probably been using password, pass keys for their employees for some time now. It's only just now leaking out to us. And I presume we'll get a push at WWDC from Apple as well. But... The, the ecosystem's not mature enough yet, is it? Maybe maybe my allegories of matter was better than I thought it was because that's not quite there yet either. And this is where we seem to be. Yeah, and you're not relying just upon one vendor, are you? It, it relies upon everybody using the same way of doing it and then companies like OnePassword supporting it so that hopefully you can have a cloud-synced version of it and therefore if you lose your device, it doesn't matter, your passkeys are still okay. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out and I think you were right 
calling out matter because it, it feels very similar I'm with you that's all I've got for the main show have you got anything you want to add to that no I think you've nailed it I think that, that we call it a day shall we no let's just very quickly I have got an app of the week I've got actually two apps of the week that I'm just going to throw out there all my traveling I have started I was using maps in the car to get myself around both in Northern Ireland and to Bristol Airport Bristol Airport has an ultra low emission zone or at least Bristol has an ultra low emission zone my Tesla unfortunately I couldn't take because I think I talked about that last week and it's had a bit of damage so I was driving in the mini I drove to Bristol Airport with the Waze app Waze app is great it gives you warnings about potential hazards by the side of the road, roadworks, things broken down and all the rest of it, which was great until I got close to Bristol where it tried to route me around the, the emission zone, I think, maybe. It might have just been traffic, but it seemed to be taking me that way. Where it took me down the strangest, smallest back road I've ever been on in my life. Who'd have thought there was an airport at the end of it, but I did eventually get there, so that was quite cool. And then on the way back, I did Apple Maps and both of them did really good jobs and I didn't get charged as far as I'm aware for the emission zone. So just wanted to give a shout out to those two default apps that I don't think enough about really. They are both good apps but it sounds like you went the same way I did to Bristol Airport down some very small lanes very close to the airport and like you say oh look there's a runway at the end of this tiny lane so it sounds very familiar. No I think they're two very good apps and I would recommend it as well. Fair enough have you got a thing of the week? I do and actually I didn't realise we were going to talk about the BAFTAs today but I actually read the Slow Horses novel by Mick Heron and it's fantastic the book was so good actually and I know I've seen the TV show and I had listened to some of the audiobook but I actually went and read the book properly gave it my full full attention and read it really quick actually it's quite a long book three four hundred pages but it was just fantastic the way that he does the story and flipping between scenes within the same chapter was just just really good and the way he crafted it I thought was fantastic I genuinely really enjoyed it and would would recommend and actually want to go on and read the next one now brilliant sounds like a good recommendation it was so good I think we can call that show I think so too so look if anybody wants to get into contact with us Rod is at g5maniac at mastodon.scot I'm at underscore cjp at mastodon.social or alternatively you can email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com talk to you next week cheers Rod